So we felt like it was still inspired by our roots and um, still had these traditional methods, but was something you you know was a, a drink you could have. You could be watching a game and drink three of, or you could be out at a picnic or on a boat, or and it's just you just didn't need to. It wasn't so special, you know. I would give people Shaksbury in the early days, and like, oh, this is great, you know. I'll save it for our anniversary or New Year's Eve. And what I wanted to just scream at the top of my lungs was, "No, please drink it on Tuesday with takeout." From Vermont Center for Emerging Technologies, it's Start Here, a podcast sharing the stories of active, aspiring, and accidental entrepreneurs. Today, we are joined by our old pal, David Dalgano, co-founder of Shaxbury, the Addison County-based maker of organic, complex ciders. Welcome. This is Sam Roach-Gerber. And David Bradbury. Recording from the Consolidated Technology Hub in downtown Burlington, Vermont. David, hello. How are you? Howdy. Howdy, David. We're doing well today. So awesome you're here. Just a couple days in a Sam. Just a couple days in a Sam. I love it. I'm so happy you're here. Um, First of all, thank you for all of your support with our student entrepreneurs. You're an Addison County-based entrepreneur, so we knock on your door at least once a year to come chat with our mid-kids and so appreciate that. So thanks for coming up to Burlington this time. Yeah. Pleasure's all mine, really. I love love, uh, getting back on campus and and, uh, taking part in those classes. It's the yeah, what do you get out of it? Why why talk to the Middlebury students every January? Uh, their uh, students are just so full of curiosity and enthusiasm, and um, and there's just there's just so much power in, in youth, and uh, you know, being now in the, uh, my mid thirties with three kids and a ten year old business, and just just being able to kind of look back and think about. Uh, being a student and hear from the students and hear about what they're thinking about and what motivates them. And I, I think I learn probably more than they do in the end of the day, um, or at least as much. I love that. <laughs> and while we're on the subject, can you talk to us a little bit? Like you went to Middlebury, tell us about your college days and how maybe that influenced your path to entrepreneurship. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I, I think my path to uh, entrepreneurship, and I apologize for the pun, but the apple does not fall far <laughs> from the tree. That didn't take long. Doesn't take long. There will be more. Yeah, you're a dad more. of three. So. Yeah, oh like, yeah, literally. Yeah, dad I was jokes. like, oh yeah, dad jokes. Here yeah. for it. Um, so my my family has been in in the business world uh, for many many generations, going back to. Uh, to the Russian Jews in the late 1800s, and um, when our when my, my my dad's side of the family landed in Kansas City in the early 1900s, they started a, a pawn shop, which would become a jewelry store, you know, focused on jewelry, and would eventually become a, a larger, um, almost like a department store. Um, back in that day, instead of the internet, they had catalogs, mm. so it was a catalog store where you'd get the Catalog that was like three inches thick, and you'd order your Weber grill or whatever. So that was the family business, and and my dad from there um, had a a jewelry store that was the 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 family business from more or less when I was born through uh, my my middle brother has 
has taken over as the fourth generation uh, retail jeweler in our family. So I, I grew up in business, and um, and it kind of just I, I found my way back there pretty pretty quickly. So did um, you before you went to college? Were you like I'm going to do something different, and then it kind of started to seep back in. Yeah, I um, the only thing I really remember definitely wanting to be when I grew up uh, as a kid was a professional soccer player. Oh, there's <laughs> still time. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, two, not one, but two of my teammates growing up became professional soccer players. One became um, the first Kansan to play in the World Cup, uh, oh. the World Cup in Brazil. Matt Beasler. So um, I didn't make it. Um, I had to tap out due to a, uh, a genetic heart condition that I found that I had in high school. So that that brought my uh, soccer career to a screeching halt when I was sixteen, and um, and I got to focus on other things. And um, fortunately, I was uh, really dedicated to my studies and found myself. Lucky enough to go to Middlebury College. So, and what did you study? I studied uh, religion uh, with a focus in Islam, um, and I I almost had sort of a, a second major in geography. Mm-hmm. Um, but I loved kind of looking at history and studying history through the lens of religion. And um, the professor at the time. Who who focused on Islam was just an absolutely astoundingly talented uh, person and became uh, you know a, a mentor and someone who I just loved learning from and I, I went to Middlebury specifically for that reason like I liked the small school where you'd be close to these brilliant people and people who are there because they love to teach and so when um, when I stumbled accidentally into Professor Stearns' course um, in 2007, um, I, I found myself right at home. And it was a total accident. Um, I was literally it w- on the on Banner Web, which is probably long gone now. No, they still call they it. They still? Okay. Yeah, yeah. So where you were. Irrelevant. You, it just said. Um, Paradise Lost, and so I thought it would be a course on Milton, but I missed the colon, or it didn't show up, which was Muslims, Jews, and Christians in Al-Andalus. <laughs> so I literally walked through the the February, uh, the Valentine's Day snowstorm of 2007, which was, you know, we got 28 inches. I was not inches. in class that day, yeah. Yeah, in 24 hours, I walked backwards um, to across uh, Battelle Beach, this like large green area on the Middlebury campus, to to literally get to the to the class, um, and n- notably it wasn't canceled because Professor Stearns was very committed to his craft, and um, with along with uh, f- you know four other people, I just got to hang out with one of the most brilliant people I've ever met, and I was like, all right, this Look. is it, I'm Look. in, I'm going to take every one of his courses and some other religion courses too. And I just loved the department. It was a very familial place. They did these awesome dinners, and the professors really opened themselves and their f- homes up to to the students. And um, I just, I just went. I was, I went all in. So, with with that family history of 
entrepreneurs and business owners. I mean, did they get why you were studying religion, or did they want you to take accounting or something? Or yeah, that's a that's a that's a good question. Um, I think that we were all on board that Middlebury College was not. A vocational school, like we were going to Middlebury to basically learn how to learn, and so, so long as you know the grades were good and the focus was there, my parents were very much okay with whatever path uh, I would choose. And that's so great. So they were they were always both my parents. Um, they always agreed on. Trying to give us the best education possible, so that was like that was a central priority for them. That that shaped so many other decisions, like many families, I guess, where we lived and uh, where we were. Like everything kind of went around education. So um, they were really committed to that through through undergrad, and um, so that's what helped open up. I, I have two older brothers. Um, and uh, so my oldest brother Dustin really, you know, I don't think anyone in our family knew what a liberal arts degree was uh, before him. Uh, neither of my parents graduated from college, and you know, my dad was at MU when it was uh, hip, hippie hippie town uh, in the seventies, and uh, sort of had a different educational experience, let's say. And um, and so. Um, yeah, so Dustin, my oldest brother, really um, learned about all the different college and university opportunities, and sort of as the oldest siblings have to do, you know, he he carved the path. Yep. My middle brother, um, you know, sort of went down the similar path, and at that point, you know, it's like, well, if they can do it, so can I. <laughs> perfect. Perfect. Um, so you co-founded Shaxbury with Colin Davis. Tell us about how that partnership came together, and and what your roles are either back then or today, and, and have they changed at all? Yeah, yeah. So uh, so ten years ago, um, which is just exciting to say. I don't know if I've done many things in my God, life. You were for such a puppy though when you years. started. Oh that. yeah, wow. Such a nice round number. Really lean <laughs> it into is, that. It is. And uh, and for all those listeners out there, you know our first office was Vset Middlebury. So so thank That's you. That's right, the courthouse. Thank, thank you for that. You, you had such a crew back there with yeah. Seed Sheet and mm-hmm. Faraday and Iris VR mm-hmm. and yeah and Shaxbury. Yep, recess. Oh, recess. That's um, coming back too. People are starting to talk about active yeah, recess totally, again. totally. Um. So Colin and I met, uh, originally we met socially um, when we were in our 20s, living in Middlebury. We, um, a friend and I started a, a, a weekly social thing we called Pizza Tuesday. And the idea was simple. Somebody hosted, they made, they made doughs, and people came and, to hang out, and um, people brought toppings. So... Make pizza, have some beers, maybe some ciders, and um, make some friends. Because I, you know, when I graduated, all my friends from college, you know, moved away. So I had 
to make new friends. And um, so Colin was living in the area, and uh, and um, we got to know each other socially first. Um, in addition to the pizzas, we loved to play pickup sports, so we would often be playing basketball or what have you. And um, and then there came a point where uh, I was working at Sunrise Orchards in Cornwall, a large um, sort of wholesale-driven orchard, uh, one of the largest in the state. And um, we hired Colin as a consultant in the uh, to think about value-added Apple products. And that was really the transition from when we were friends to when we were working together as colleagues. And um, he was working for an e-recycling firm at the time called Good Point Recycling in Middlebury. And uh, I think the partnership worked right out of the gate because he loves to make things and I love to sell things. And, uh, you know, neither of us really enjoys the other's job. <laughs> nice. And so still today, um, you know, I'm more on the sales and marketing side of the business and then he's really on the operational side of the business and then we're sharing you know f- finance legal and all the rest of it hr so did you start like what were you doing right after school cuz you didn't start shaxbury right away mm-hmm. yeah i um i decided to to stick around vermont um well what i what i told people is that you know i was sticking around vermont to Farm, but the truth of the matter is, I was really sticking around to see about a relationship, which worked out. <laughs> Will this be the mother of your children? Mother of my three wonderful children, and um, so she was a couple classes behind me at Middlebury, and uh, I had been working in, you know, I'd worked in New York, D.C., uh, San Francisco, and was very much on more of a like an urban track. But uh, put that into you know, just put put a pause on that. I worked at Golden Russet Farm, a diversified organic veggie farm, uh, for a season right out of college. So I graduated in February and started there in March. And then all the while was talking to Barney Hodges at Sunrise Orchards about working from him. And and again, that's where the apple tree situation, small tree, apple falling from the tree situation really comes to light because much as selling apples was a lot different than selling jewelry, they're both small businesses and it felt very at home for me to just be back in that environment. Got it. So he chose love and stuck around, Sam. Yeah. It's like really warming my heart today. <laughs> um, awesome. So you and Colin worked well together, decided to start a a cider brand together. Yeah, so we 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 shook hands uh, at Dollar Miller Draft Night at Fire and Ice in Middlebury. Um, I was so nervous going into that that meeting um, because it was get, we were kind of getting closer and closer, and either we were going to do this thing together or or he was going to start some type of apple. Hold on, wait a minute. It, you actually had set the meeting for I, I Dollar called, Miller draft. Night. I called the meeting, and it so you know, okay. So just okay. I wanted to make yeah. sure this was like you know, it, it, it planned. Was, okay. Dollar Miller draft night was that was a that was a coincidence, but I just remember it clear as day. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I I wonder if they still. Have, it must not. It's impossible to find a beer for a dollar, right? That doesn't exist anymore. 
Oh, we'll have to check it out. Yeah, I'll have to, I'll have to we'll look into that. We'll fact check. Next, next time I'm on, we'll, uh, we'll get that fact checked. But it was definitely Dollar Miller draft night. And, um, you know, Colin is a year older than my oldest brother. And my oldest brother is, you know, basically a demigod to me. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to work up the courage to say, hey, I want to do this, but I'm only going to do this if we do it 50-50 because that's just what I need. And uh, and it just, I, I'm sweating a little bit just thinking about that. Aww. And it worked out. And it was like he he just kind of lit up, and he was like, "That sounds great." And I was like, "Oh, <laughs> great! All right." And, and then you from each there, put a dollar on the bar to pay for your own drinks. Basically, and, and yeah. The rest was you know, There was a hundred chairs to the company. We each had fifty. It was a beautiful and simple time. <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> and uh, a time full of potential energy. And um, so we got going. We uh, we entered the cider market. You know, when cider was booming. I mean, it was the this was before hard seltzer. You know, mm-hmm. it was. Growing seventy percent a year, Woodchuck had just sold for three hundred and five million dollars to the CNC Group out of Ireland, and you know, gluten was the enemy. Gluten was the enemy, That's and right. craft beer was also booming, and you know, had really laid the groundwork in many ways for the craft cider movement. It's, it must have been very easy then. <laughs> um, easy. I don't think so. <laughs> I'm rad. But yeah. it was uh, it was it was certainly a different time in the industry. It was it was exciting being in a being in an industry that's growing in a in a category that's growing that quickly. It's very dynamic. So from um, from the the draft night handshake to having a product on the shelves. Mm-hmm. How long are we talking? So that was, you know, spring 2013. We were incorporated July 1st, 2013. So that's when we really marked, you know, the start. And then our first product hit shelves in Vermont and and Boston in summer of 14. Wow. And our first when we first started Shaxbury, we were a very wine-driven cider company. Hmm. So I would say our 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 model was to to basically Go after the twelve to fifteen dollar table wine market. So instead this- of table wine, you'd have cider, which is very much inspired by the European cider tradition. Right. Where still today and for hundreds of years, up until today, they they drink cider in seven fifty milliliter bottles, and it's complex and very similar to wine, to grape wine. And that's what I was going to ask. At this point, was Shaxbury just in bottles? It was just in bottles and just in 750 ml bottles. It was still. Um, we imported. Um, we had so we had partners we worked with to get certain um, types of cider from in England and in Spain. So we we came to market in a very different way than it most was, cider it companies. Was. And you, you had some really neat early uh, retailers and in, in San Fran and, and, and New York and other mm-hmm. markets that really validated early on. And you won some awards and. Mm-hmm. Gold medals, wherever they were, mm-hmm. if, I, if I recall. Yeah. Um, so, why did you? What did you learn from that sort of wine-like format mm-hmm. uh, to what you are today? Like, what, what what was the shift all about? Yeah, I, I would say over time, what we what we learned or what we felt was that the cider market 
um, cider drinkers broadly are looking to cider as a beer alternative. And what that means to me is that it's mo- like most American consumers are expecting it to be, you know, five to six percent. They're expecting it to be in smaller formats like beer, so cans or on draft and kegs. They're looking for bubbles and they're looking for it to be easy drinking, you know. Um, and so we um, we didn't really fully embrace that for, for many years. We were really focused on, again, this like food-driven, um, sort of complex and nuanced ciders that are taste taste amazing complemented with with dinner. And um, what we felt like after a number of years is that that market is just not quite large enough to support the size of company that we aspire to build. And so we we shifted. We still make ciders like that, but we saw an opportunity to make a rosé cider, which was really our first foray into that Kind of more easy drinking, middle of the road cider breakout product, and it was 2018 was dubbed by Food and Wine the year of the non wine rosé. So you had rosé vodkas and rosé this and rosé that, and we were written up as you know one of the first rosé ciders, and it made like a rosé wine where it's like using grape skins to create the flavor and color. So we felt like it was still inspired by our roots and um, still had these traditional methods, but was something you, you know, was a, a drink you could have, you could be watching a game and drink three of, or you could be out at a picnic or on a boat or, and it's just, you just didn't need to, it wasn't so special. You know, I would give people Shaxbury in the early days and like, oh, this is great. You know, I'll save it for our anniversary or New Year's Eve. And what I wanted to just scream at the top of my lungs was, no, please <laughs> drink it on Tuesday with takeout. It's not special. Yeah. <laughs> and we need you to drink and go buy another one next week because this only works if we get you to buy it all the time. <laughs> That's how my husband looks at a collared shirt. You know, I'm like, you can just wear that on a Tuesday. You know, you don't need the special occasion. So yeah, I, I, I hear that. Yeah. Um, and so was that sort of rose cider, like kind of a bridge to this new sort of more approachable sparkling can? Yeah, it was. It was. Um, it was one of the first times where, when it came out, you could just. You could feel the buzz. You're like, there's something different about mm. this, and it was the first time where we just couldn't keep up with production. You know, it was, it was. Uh, we, we were at the time we didn't have our own primary production facility, so our core ciders were being made by um, our good friends at Woodchuck, and uh, and they, you know, so we had to kind of choose in advance like how much we were going to make, and we just wildly underestimated. How much cider we needed that year, and it That'd just be heartbreaking. sold out, and then it sold out, and then it sold out, and it was just it was awesome. It was a fun year, and saw a lot of growth. We were a pretty small team then, um, relatively speaking, because again we were having it co-packed, so we didn't have as many production people, um, and. It was, you know, we were just rocking and rolling. It was fun it's time. amazing that like 
so much of the earlier years, the challenge was let's find that that breakout product or the product market fit, right? And then you get it, and it creates a whole host of other problems. So like too few sales or too many sales uh, create yeah, different challenges for the, for the for the team. They Which are, do you prefer? Oh, a hundred percent. I almost said too few sales, but it, too many sales is is obviously the happy place to be. But um, I am the punching bag that gets you know I I deal with the projections. So if we if we're running out of product, it is my fault. And I also manage the, the sales team, so um, so those folks are understandably upset if we're you know we've worked so hard to get these important placements. You're like I did my job, you got to do yours. Exactly. Man. Yeah. And uh, and so um, having too little product is definitely its own problem. Um, cider, I would say, is just it's in my mind, it's like it's not special enough to just be one of those products that you can run out of and then be like, oh, just wait a few weeks and it'll come back. People move on. Um, maybe like thinking about sort of heady topper when, you know, when it was like just people were lined up for it and it was special enough that people were going to come back in three weeks. You know, with cider, if you're just, sorry, Whole Foods, we're not going to have product for three weeks. They're like, oh, I mean, it's not a problem for us. Yeah, we we'll just pull here. from the yeah. dozens of other cider companies that want that placement, and so those are you know so so too too little product is definitely its own challenge, but but also a much happier problem to have than looking at you know a thousand cases of something that's not selling, which we've done too. Yeah. Right. So, so oh, we're gonna ask the same question that I was. are we. Well, how do you view competition? Like, you know, they have if they have twelve other ciders ready to go. Mm-hmm. If it's not you, like, you know, you all kind of brand yourself as having like kind of a complex flavor, right? Yeah. Um, what else kind of to you sets Shaxbury apart, and how you just a- approach that? Has that influenced the way that you do business or you create products? Yeah, Abs- absolutely. I mean, from day one, I was very much a believer. I mean, was really studying the. Um, Cohorts of people in beverage who created a, a region or created a style, and thus everyone benefited. So, mm-hmm. like, look at the origins of Napa Valley. I mean, it wasn't an accident. You know, it wasn't like it just just they just stumbled into it. It, it happened because of a group of, of very smart and dedicated people who who created a demand for wines from that region, and and struggled and struggled and struggled along the way. Or or look at Go back to 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 Hetty Topper and and you know the just the IPA craze and like there was a time when no one drank IPAs and then you know now there's a whole segment the New England IPA it's its own style and it's been a huge boon for many brewers up here and um, so so when we came to the cider industry I mean I was I was blown away that there wasn't an association at that time there was a, a national association but there wasn't. Like a, a New England chapter, really. So I helped found the Vermont Cider Association and um, got going with a lot of the other craft producers and woodchuck at that time. And um, have always viewed like all boats rise together. So if we can hold a section in the grocery store, or at the bar, at the restaurant, that is the cider section. Yeah. And that that's going to benefit everyone. If we all make a good high a high quality product that people want, we all benefit. More shelf space. More shelf space, just more it's it creates that kind of that 
that ecosystem effect for you tech people. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> that you know, it creates that community. It creates that. It's just. It's. It's just. You're not standing alone out there. So. Um, I'm I'm always thrilled to hear about other cider companies that are winning and doing well and new people coming to the space. Um, and um, yeah, that's a that's 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 a good thing for us. It's just, it indicates that we're in a healthy environment. You're listening to Start Here, a podcast from Vermont Center for Emerging Technologies. VSET is a public benefit corporation serving Vermont businesses from start to scale. We provide no-cost strategic business advising for any business owner, regardless of stage or industry, as well as venture capital for early-stage tech or tech-enabled businesses. You can find us online at vset.co. That's V-C-E-T dot C-O. If you like what you're hearing, please help us out and rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast today. Now, back to the show. Yeah. So, a um, couple business questions. Um, how many employees do you have now? Uh, we're hanging right around 20. 20? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. How, how many of those are here in, in Vermont? Uh, 17. 17, yeah. right? And you're producing where now? We are in Virgins. Um, so right leading into the to the pandemic, we had so fall of nineteen we signed a lease for the old country home products space on Miggs Road, kind of tucked away. The place is literally like, you know, if 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 it all goes to shit, it's 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 like a concrete bunker. I mean, it was built by. Company that I also owns like a concrete military company. industrial complex. Yeah, building. it's it's um, and it's it's just kind of tucked back. Um, country owned products was there for decades. They were acquired and production. The new company moved production to the Midwest and moved their call center to uh, to South Burlington. And so this space was ninety thousand square feet. It had a probably in its heyday about three hundred employees in it, and. Um, we were just across the train tracks, and you know, saw the opportunity. We we started talking to the landlord, uh, the Carrera family. Absolutely incredible family. They've been super supportive landlords, and we've been growing in that space since uh, since 2019. Uh, you know, of course, going into the pandemic, we were like, yeah, let's go. You know, 50 to 100 percent growth. Like, we're just. Having, we're, yeah, we're gonna fill this facility in three years. Like this is what could stop us. And then March 2020 well, comes along, and you're like, oh, well, we sell forty percent of our business is sold to bars and restaurants. So yeah, do the quick math. 2020 and 2021 were were tough years. Tough years. Tough years. And a tough time to have just invested. I mean, we signed the last major loan. The week before Stay Home, Stay Safe went into place, wow. we had a tunnel pasteurizer sitting in the parking lot for several months. Uh, you know, so it was, uh, you know, that was unexpected, but as it was for everyone. And how how have you? You mentioned a loan. Like, how did you fund the business along the way? And mm-hmm. you know, were there this mosaic of different sources? And and did you enjoy that process? Uh, you know, like 
like all aspects of the business, I, I love that part of the process when it's going well. <laughs> and I do not like that part of the process when it's, you know, February 1st and, you know, we're coming out of dry January and, uh, you know, <laughs> orders have been, you know, expectedly slow and yada, yada, yada. And, uh, and cash, cash is, cash, and we're in that happy or unhappy cash flow time of year. Um, so we started raising capital from day one. Um, we agreed on that very early on. You know, we were really trying to swing for it to be a regional, if not a national brand and, you know, a well-known brand. And we wanted to do it with, um, you know, resources that, that neither Colin nor I had. So, um, we started with angel investors, um, and uh, we've we've done a number of, of rounds, kind of on the angel side. We never really got to a true like institutional round. There are of course a, a slew of CPG minded institutional investors, um, but they're they're they tend to be looking for businesses that are a little bigger than we've been. Um, so we have angels. We've done two crowdfunding rounds through Start Engine. Uh, during the pandemic, one was in 2020, and then a, a small follow-on round in 2021, um, and then we've got all kinds of different debt. So we've done a little bit of everything in finance. Basically, I, I would say is we've in 10 years we've just you know we've hustled and we've made it happen, and um, and to do it we've needed a just a whole slew of different. Types of financing. Yeah, I, I give you so much credit for your success with Start Engine. I yeah, mean, I think I kind of rolled my eyes when I first saw yeah. that early yeah. on, and um, I love being proven wrong. Like literally, it's not yeah. what you learn, right? Like, yeah, yeah. We were we were, I believe, um, the first Vermont company back when the cap for equity crowdfunding was was a million. We were the first company to um, to hit that. Uh, hit that mark, and honestly, we had no idea how it was going to turn out. You know, we knew we were coming to that round of fundraising with, you know, some people who wanted to, some existing investors who wanted to put in some money, but that that was, you know, maybe a quarter of the round. And we we knew we had, you know, our our email list and our Instagram followers and people out there, consumers who liked it, and we also knew it was. It was fall 2020. I mean, look back at that time. It was a wild presidential election. We were in the heart of shutdown. It was just, you know, one COVID wave after another. And we just really didn't know how people would respond. You know, we wanted the round to go up in September before, you know, the November election and kind of going into the holidays, but didn't happen. We launched mid-October. And um, I think maybe part of the success was just sort of almost a retail thing therapy thing on some level like people were looking for outlets and were looking for ways to you know support creative ways to support their communities you know, and I was drinking um, more spend some money and <laughs> get some alcohol <laughs> and looking just for a good like a, a happier story and I think we we managed to craft that with that first campaign um so it uh so that yeah that was a very different experience but has been uh, a, as positive as as it could have been, you know, the, the, I think the SEC did a good job with 
equity crowdfunding to you know create some regulation around it, but then also not make it so onerous that small businesses couldn't actually use it. So we have to do our annual filing, which is due at the end of April. And I, again, I think you've been good. the most successful uh, case that I'm aware of, you know, here in Vermont for yeah. the, for the equity crowdfunding. Yeah, yeah. Um, both in terms of size and scope, and and it must be nice too, like. I can have a can of it and then make my investment decision, kind of. Yeah. Right? Versus yeah. like, oh, hey, fund us and we'll build this thing. Yeah. Uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. We certainly had a lot of traction by that point. You know, we we're seven, eight years in, and um, so I think that 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 definitely helped a lot. Yeah. Um, That's awesome. I yeah, I talked to so many entrepreneurs that are. You know, come into financing their businesses with so many kind of preconceived notions about what a certain type of funding means. Mm-hmm. Like, what, you know, whether you're petrified of debt because you grew up with parents that were in debt, right? Mm-hmm. Or like you think equity means you're going to give away your entire business or whatever. So I think it's, I love that you guys have used all the tools in the toolkit. And, and, um, it's such a good reminder, I think, for folks out there that, you know, you, you do have to kind of, seek out these different resources and kind of educate yourself on what does it actually mean and what does it mean for my business and what are the pros and cons you know am I giving up um, you know maybe a little bit of equity but it, I can be first in the market then mm-hmm. that can be a game changer yeah absolutely when, I, I remember when I my, my oldest brother who's a an early stage tech investor and has been a tremendous resource for us and he explained the difference between Basically, ownership and control. <laughs> right? Yeah, and um, because you know we grew up with our family business, and you know our folks are owner operators. And my dad, bless his soul, could never have had a business partner. <laughs> he thought I was crazy for having even a business partner, much less investors. Awesome. And uh, it just wouldn't have fit for him. Yeah. And um, but for for Colin and me, it was it was the perfect thing. It, it allowed us to you know raising capital and and. Having that first affirmation. I mean, honestly, that was the first time we ever sold anything yeah. in a certain sense. Totally. Like selling this vision. And um, so, you know, when it's when it's going well, it's 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 fun and it's and it can be such a positive thing for a company. You've got those supporters out there and um and uh, so it can be it can be a good thing. Awesome. Um, I just want to touch quickly on your branding because obviously it's super important mm-hmm. for um, the type of business that you're in. But it's, I just love it. I'm obsessed with it, and I think it's so clear. You know, you go to City Market and it's like they have every cool craft anything you've ever seen, and it's a massive wall. And Shaxbury stuff always catches my eye. So, yeah. can you just talk for a second about you know how you've approached that and what sort of what is your sort of Brand ethos. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean the um, the early uh, idea was was Colin um, had had heard of this uh, incredible artist based here in Burlington, Anne Marie Buckley, whose business is Buckley Projects. Know her work well. Yeah, and she um, she she left Burton and started doing some just really beautiful. Um, uh, stationery and invitations and and different things like that. And um, she, uh, so Colin had, had been f- kind of following her work. I think Colin's wife had written about Anne Marie for for seven days, and maybe that's how they originally 
came across her business and um, she is just has such a fresh view of she's just an, an incredibly talented person. So she and, and and then Colin being more on that creative side. I, I'm not the I'm not the the brand guy. <laughs> Never was, but they they really drove it. And it, the idea was to do sort of a modern take on classic Americana. You yep. know, so the Shaxbury logo has that kind of old beer look. But I mean the the amount of time that we spent debating every curve of that oh, and the font word mark really and remarkable. you know yeah. the B-U-R-Y and how to handle the U-R and does it look like a W or not and whatever. I mean, it was months spent yeah. on that. And I'm um, actually happy to hear that because it's so good. Like I wanted it to be a lot of yeah, effort. <laughs> it, yeah, and Anne-Marie is just an incredible talent and just she does not settle for anything less than than perfect. And so she... Really helped guide that, um, and then uh, starting with our organic rebrand in the end of two thousand. I, I guess we started working at the end of twenty twenty one. We worked with now another Vermont based design crew called Always with Honor, and they're based in Panton, which is about fifteen minutes from our cidery. Right. Um, and actually, when we first started working with Tyler and Elsa, they're out in Portland, Oregon, but they have some family connections here and whatnot, and moved here and landed 15 minutes from the cidery, so we can go to Virgin's Laundry and chat about things as we, you know, cook up the new projects. So, um, so it's it's you know those figures have all been instrumental in creating the the visual side of the brand. Um, and you looked at it and you were like, yeah, I can sell this. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> like, I was like, perfect. That's the box check. <laughs> um, have you had any product flops, like flavors, or that just you just didn't work out well? And and why? You know, what did you learn? Yeah, um, we've had a we've had a few. Uh, we came out with a product which we called um, a spritz. <laughs> And either it was too early, or maybe we just didn't give it enough time, or um, I don't know exactly why it didn't. Is that like really land. three years ago? No, probably going more toward four or five. The first like product we, we were like, <laughs> we wanted to do, it was our first effort at a rose. So it must have been the start of 17. And, um, Instead of rose, we did rose, like rose petal. And rose, in the right amount, can be a lovely thing oh, in beverage. Botanical and delightful. Just delightful. Too much rose, and you get just, you know, grandma's cheap perfume kind of thing. And we ended up going a little, like, just, just dip that, just, just a little too much in there. And it, it came out, and I was like, whoa. This thing. So there are a few people out there who just adored it yeah. and loved that beverage. And a lot of people were like, what's going on here? Uh, <laughs> it must be okay? so tough to figure that out. Do you, and do you then test flavors now? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We have basically our crew that, you know, it's like four or five people that are on the the new product team. And um so we do bench tops and usually a few different rounds, and we're coming to it with an idea. And now we also have such a 
we have a much larger body of work and we're more used to working with flavorings and so um, that's always an exciting thing. People, you know, we love working on new products. We love releasing new products. We love selling new products. Yeah. Consumers love, you know, we have to be careful not to not to try and come out with too many different things in a year because every additional SKU costs a lot of money and it takes a lot of time and effort. Um, but we started a core rotator series this year, which has been really successful. So we, we're, we've just come out with a blackberry lime cider that's doing extremely well. We've got a cider called Sweater Weather coming out this fall, which Colin and I love. We love our sweaters. So we've always wanted to do a Sweater Weather cider. And it's going to happen this year. Awesome. Well, I, I yeah. vote for another... another uh, Swing at the rose because I think that'd be really good. <laughs> yeah. So there's your challenge. There's, your can we call it Sammy cider. Uh, sure. Right. I mean, we can talk. A little we can tart talk. in the front end, nice talk. and warm finish. Exactly. Just, there you go. It's got to be slightly botanical. Yeah, guaranteed placement here at the uh, the V-set. Oh, the V-set cooler, it, Chocksbury though, you know? is in our refrigerator <laughs> most every day, except it's today, true. embarrassingly. But it's true. Um, all right, we need to wrap up here, Sam, because oh, I know man. it goes by so quickly. Magic wand time, very important aspect of the Start Here podcast. If you had a magic wand and you could change one thing about Vermont instantly, what would you change? Oh, you're talking to me. (laughs) (laughs) That's two of us that don't take a hint well then. Um, I would uh, have... um, a bullet train to New York City. Get there in two and a half hours. Sick. I'm in. Wow. We got the train. Love it. Ding, ding, Very ding. excited. So, well, you know why? Because Middlebury was shut down for like two years where they rebuilt that train section well, there's, in downtown. there's that. Yeah. yeah which, um, Really important to get that tunnel a, an inch higher or whatever. Um, but... Uh, <laughs> But yeah, I, I love New York City. I love going to New York City. It also gives us access. You know, I'm always flying to Kansas City to see mm-hmm. my family that's there. And let me tell you, Middlebury, Vermont to Kansas City, Missouri is not a quick day's travel. No, <laughs> so, you know, a bullet train overnight in New York, direct flight, oh, be okay. a dream. We'll work on it for you. Be work on that. Um, Dave, thank you so much for sharing a little bit of your journey and and happy birthday. This 10 years is really remarkable. Um, You made it Mm -hmm. and are making it, which is really wonderful. And and also um, for your continued support of Middlebury College and their student entrepreneurs, it's really wonderful to pay it forward and, as you said, learn a little bit along the way. Mm -hmm. I'm proud and thirsty. This has been Start Here with Sam and Dave, a podcast sharing the stories of active, aspiring, and accidental entrepreneurs. The series has been made possible by the Vermont Technology Council and Consolidated Communications. Thanks for listening. Let's go to the cider, Sam. See ya.